Congressman Eric Sorensen talks about shaping energy policy as much of his central Illinois district decides what to do with a controversial energy project. We have to make sure that safety is at the forefront. Congressman Eric Sorensen next on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon. I'm John Norton. On today's show, you'll hear more of our conversation with the first-term Democrat who represents parts of Bloomington Normal. Plus, meet some of the new players shaping public opinion on the Unit 5 referendum the second time around. There's a huge distrust of the district and district leadership in our community, which is why it failed in the fall. You'll hear from Kingsley Junior High PTO leader Nikki Maurer and others on either side of the referendum. Plus, an update on the challenges facing the trucking industry. Those stories follow a Bloomington Normal News update just ahead. This is WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Ryan Fuller and his mother Stephanie. It was definitely worth it. It was evident from the get-go that they were so caring and compassionate and patient (laughs) with a young guy like him. (laughs) Ryan and Stephanie's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. Thanks for listening. I'm John Norton. Early voting begins Thursday. Unit 5 voters are being asked for the second time in less than six months to approve a tax referendum to address the school district's $12 million budget deficit. While the question is the same, the stakes feel different this time. Unlike November's vote, the school board has now laid out what exactly will be cut first if the referendum fails, starting with sports and clubs for junior high students, sports teams for freshmen, and band and orchestra for fifth graders. Those cuts are partly responsible for animating many new influencers shaping public opinion on the referendum, including school board candidate slates, student-led organizing, and parent-teacher organizations. WGLT. Ryan Denham has this look at the expanded political playing field. Patrick Maneri is a spokesperson for Yes for Unit 5, the leading pro-referendum group. He says there's more passion, more intensity. I'd say the first time around we were reaching out and asking and asking and asking for people to to engage with us and to be a part of it. And now we're actually being bombarded with people coming and asking and asking if they can be involved with it. That means more groups are getting involved. One of them is Unit 5 Students for the Referendum. That's a new group led by normal community high school seniors Avani Rye and Lily McClelland. They feel that students' voices need to be better represented in the debate. They say the budget cuts are frightening. McClellan says being able to do orchestra and sports since middle school is part of what's made her a well-rounded student today. Because I've realized how privileged I am, I think it would be selfish of us not to want future students to have these same privileges as well. Rye says the group is looking at activating students through voter drives for those over 18, attending school board meetings, and wearing orange and black on Tuesdays. We have to trust the community, um, and we're really entrusting them not only with our futures, but the future of Bloomington Normal, McLean County as a whole. The cuts have gotten the attention of many junior high parents. Those three years are critical for personal development. It's according to Nikki Maurer, president of the Kingsley Junior High PTO and a former high school educator herself. Sportsmanship, teamwork, collaboration, all of those life skills that, yes, our kids do get some of that during their academic time in school, but more of it comes from the things that they're involved in outside of school and extracurriculars. 
A parent asked the PTO if it would get involved with the referendum, so they surveyed members using an anonymous online poll. 20 of 21 respondents supported the referendum, so the PTO endorsed it. As Kingsley parents and other groups campaign for the referendum, the PTO will share that information through its Facebook page, email list, and other means. Maurer wants this time to be different in two ways. First, she says pro-referendum people need to engage and try to sway those who voted no in November. Second, referendum supporters must share factual, yet easy-to-digest information that's not coming directly from Unit 5. That's a tall task given the complicated nature of public school finance. There's a huge distrust of the district and district leadership in our community, which is why it failed in the fall. So just continuing to share the information that the district is providing doesn't combat that issue. That distrust has bled into politics. The McLean County Republican Party opposed the referendum both times. It says Unit 5's claims about taxes ultimately going down if the referendum passes due to financial maneuvering tied to expiring debt are misleading at best. The GOP says the problem is spending, not funding, and that a hiring freeze and other cost cutting is what's needed. The GOP has endorsed what it calls the four conservative candidates in the students' first slate. That's Molly Emery, Dennis Frank, Amy Jada, and Brad Wirth. They have opposed the referendum and promised not to cut extracurricular activities. They say more use of e-learning could help lower costs. Here's Brad Worth recently talking on conservative radio station Cities 92.9. We will find other ways, other systemic ways to pull additional costs um, out of this educational uh, experience that this, the students have here at Unified. Dennis Frank told WGLT that property taxes are too high and that the referendum is poorly timed given high inflation. And throwing money at the problem isn't the answer. The other grouping of four school board candidates supports the referendum. That's incumbents Amy Roser and Kelly Pyle, plus Mark Adams and Alex Williams. They've been endorsed by the Unit 5 Teachers Union, UFIA. UFIA President Julie Hagler says there are union members in every school who will be canvassing the nearby neighborhood, talking to voters about what's at stake. The educators this time are definitely more engaged. Um, they're active, they're getting out there, they're talking in their communities, they're talking to their family members and their neighbors. Um, and so what we're really seeing is a much more grassroots effort. The Yes for Unit 5 steering committee says it has reorganized itself with a bigger and broader group for the second vote. That includes a new chair, Corinne Chapman, who previously helped lead the public-private partnership that became Harmony Park, the community's first all-inclusive playground. Chapman wasn't on the steering committee for November's vote. I really felt confident that this community would understand the situation and make the decision to to pass the referendum. And I honestly didn't feel like my my voice, my involvement was necessary. But man, when I woke up the next day after election, I found out the referendum had not passed. I felt physically sick. And just really understanding the implications of that motivated me to, to step into this role. There are several public events focused on the referendum in the coming weeks, starting with a virtual information session hosted by Unit 5. That's tomorrow night at 5.30. I'm Ryan Denham. As a matter of disclosure, WGLT's general manager, R.C. McBride, is a member of the Yes for Unit 5 steering committee. He no longer chairs the group, and he has no role in WGLT's coverage of the referendum.
This is Sound Ideas, WGLT's news magazine. Central Illinois Congressman Eric Sorensen says his background as a meteorologist will serve him well in one of his committee assignments. Sorensen was appointed to the Science, Space, and Technology Committee for his first term in Congress. The Moline Democrat represents parts of Bloomington Normal and much of northwestern Illinois. Sorensen tells WGLT's Eric Stock the role will also help him shape energy policy. It comes at a time when much of his district decides what to do with a a controversial energy project. Well, we need to make sure that we're we're focused on um, on where we're going with respect to energy. Uh, I will be on the energy subcommittee uh, within uh, the space science and technology um, committee, um, and so we need to make sure that that we're moving in the right direction. Um, understanding that you know while we all you know and while environmentalists want to be able to to snap our fingers and and um, and go green it's it's going to take a process um, and that process you know has to be a step by step but we have to understand you know where where our strategy needs to be where our focus needs to be and we have to take the steps to get there um, you know I talked to too many people um, in central Illinois where extreme weather is is having an impact um, I mean, just look at the um, insurance industry, for example. Um, more extreme weather events uh, mean that there is going to be, um, you know, more need for people to file claims. Uh, well, as as more people file claims, it's going to necessitate that that we pay more in premiums. Um, so we're all paying uh, for these extreme weather events. We need to make sure that we bring these costs down, but that's also meaning that we invest in doing the right things. And an issue that intersects with your role on the energy subcommittee and also agriculture is carbon capture. And there's a proposal or there's discussion of a proposal to build a CO2 pipeline through five states, including Illinois, and that would cut through a large stretch of your congressional district. There's little local control for the permitting of these pipelines. What do you want to see at the federal level? Well, I think that we under, need to understand um, the the impact of carbon capture. Uh, we need to understand that you know that carbon dioxide is the number one um, contributor to to man-made climate change. Um, now, we need to look at all of the different ways that we can reduce this number. Um, carbon capture is is one piece of it. Um, however, what I would like to people to think about is while this is a, a, a piece moving forward um, that we need to, to look at, the concerns that I have, not just as, as a congressman, uh, not just as a meteorologist, uh, and not just as a, as a resident of, of Western Illinois, um, it's safety. We have to make sure um, that safety is at the forefront uh, before we just allow the, the dirt to be dug up, the pipelines to be put down, um, and then tackling the issue. And then also with that final understanding, Eric, it's, it's looking at, um, you know, what were we able to accomplish in the end? Was it enough? Uh, was it just a drop in the bucket? So will you look for certain controls or certain ways to regulate these pipelines or they just should not happen at all? Absolutely. We need to, um, you know, much like there needs to be, you know, uh, you know, more regulation with respect to to any sort of pipeline. Um, but, you know, the uh, while, you know, if a, a, a crude, liquid crude pipeline bursts, I mean, we can see the impact immediately and we can clean it up. Um, and it's a it's an environmental hazard and a tragedy every time that happens. Um, but the thing that I worry about with carbon dioxide is 
um, it's an almost immediate um, emitter of carbon dioxide that that will not only kill humans, um, but it kills all living beings around that. And you know, and I think we need to make sure that the regulation is there, um, especially since it's going through the the family farm fields of, of uh, central and western Illinois. Are the regulations that you would support enough to say these pipelines are safe to be installed? Yeah, I, I think we have to look at the precedent. Uh, to be sure, Eric, you know, I, I look back at the um, uh, at the catastrophe that happened in Mississippi a few years ago um, with the carbon dioxide pipeline that broke. Um, you know, I look at, you know, as as somebody who understands risk assessment, uh, we have to look at what is the risk of a calamity should it happen um, after we build these and then look at everything that we can do to make sure that this is safe. But then again, it's looking at what was the end result? Was the end result worth um, building these in the first place? As we continue with uh, Congressman Eric Sorensen, going back to Congress, Republicans have called for spending cuts. Now, apparently, Social Security and Medicare seem to be off the table. The House Speaker has said as much. Are there other areas where federal spending you believe uh, could be trimmed or may need to be trimmed this year? I think we need to understand and and look at what's happening with the debt ceiling coming up and really take a close look at this. Um, the debt ceiling coming up is no different um, than my credit card bill that was just mailed to me and went into the mailbox. And it says that I owe for my debts by this date. Um, we have an obligation in the federal government to pay our debts because these were already spent, okay? Now, there's a complete budgetary process um, which determines how the funds from the federal government are spent. Um, and that was agreed to. That was agreed to back in December at the end of the 117th Congress. So the fact now that we are looking at the possibility of defaulting on our debt, um, that's incredibly dangerous. That the Biden administration has lowered our debt by $1.7 trillion. So we have lowered um, our debt and our spending. Um, and the fact now that that um, extreme Republicans wanna make this a political football, um, I think that's incredibly dangerous. And we need to make sure that we we push back against that and, and we pay our debts just like um, as hard as it is for us, we pay our credit card bills every month. Polls have suggested that even a majority of Democrats do not want to see Joe Biden run for re-election when he would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. Do you want to see President Biden run for re-election? Look, I, I think this is a, a decision that people will make at the ballot box. Um, I make my decision um, based on the results. Uh, looking at what has happened in, in Congress in the past two years with the Inflation Reduction Act, with the Infrastructure Act, with the Chips and Science Act, these were bipartisan bills um, that made it through um, the House, the Senate, and made it to the president's desk. And, and now, going forward, these are the things now that we need to make sure uh, the funding gets to the shovel-ready pro uh, projects. Um, that's that's going to be my job to make sure that I'm fighting uh, for Illinois 17 to make sure that we bring the funds right here uh, from these um, historic acts. I mean, we've we've never had a, uh, for instance, um, you know, climate change addressed um, like it has been. 
Um, and so those are some of the things that I look at um, when, when I look at who uh, I determine should be the president of the United States. But look, um, this is a decision that has to be made by the people, um, much like the people here um, determined that, you know, I should be the one to, to go to Washington and, and represent every person here. Because I don't just represent the 52% of the people that voted for me. Um, I represent the 48% as well. And as you said, people ultimately make the choice, but if even people in the president's own party are not uh, excited about him running for re-election, he ends up winning the primary, presuming that no one else in the party will challenge an incumbent president. Does that leave the Democratic Party vulnerable to losing in 2024? Well, I, I think that's a, you know, speaking generally, um, you know, I certainly have not heard um, any of my colleagues um, have any reservations. Um, you know, especially after, you know, the, the State of the Union address. Um, I thought the, the president was exemplary. Um, you know, looking at how he was able to talk with the American people, have that conversation with the American people, and to be able to essentially um, take Social Security and Medicare cuts off the table, um, basically negotiate with the Republicans uh, on the other side of the chamber um, during the State of the Union address, um, that was masterful. Um, but, you know, also we need to make sure that those uh, cuts never happen, uh, that we have uh, our representative in Congress and we have a president um, in the White House that is going to fight for the people to make sure that the Social Security benefits, the Medicare benefits, the Medicaid benefits stay where they need to stay. That was Congressman Eric Sorensen with WGLT's Eric Stock. Stories and conversations around Bloomington Normal in McLean County. This is WGLT's Sound Ideas. The trucking industry has coped with plenty of changes in recent years, including a driver shortage, rising fuel costs, and delays in the supply chain. Don Schaefer is executive vice president of the Springfield-based Midwest Truckers Association. He tells Joe Deacon from sister station WCBU, the industry also must adapt to making trucking more climate-friendly. I think everyone agrees that sooner or later we're going to be at that point where we're going to be looking at alternative fuels as uh, the means to move most of the nation's goods. And I mean, does that mean that uh, trucks are all going to go, you know, electric? We don't know. But uh, there's a real good chance that, uh, you know, the federal government has a goal. They're working with the truck manufacturers to develop what they would call, you know, a clean truck. And uh, it's very logical because I think just like everything else, we know that, uh, Carbon-based fuels are here, but they're, you know, being phased out. How has the trucking industry worked to address a shortage of drivers and other related employment issues? Number one issue in the trucking industry is finding good drivers and finding drivers, period, because, you know, the laws have gotten stricter and, and for the better from a safety standpoint, much stricter in regards to areas of drug and alcohol testing. But even more so is the demand. We don't have enough trucks. We don't have enough drivers. We don't have enough mechanics. All of them play a part in terms of, you know, moving everything. And uh, the industry is looking at a couple of pronged efforts. They're working more closely with training, uh, working more closely with the community colleges, for example, here in Illinois. You know, I dare say that anyone who comes out of a community college program pretty much is guaranteed a job, no matter where they go. Recruitment's always interesting because you know, who do you recruit to be a truck driver? The problems you deal with there is the fact that, in, you know, an interstate truck driver, they have to be 21 to cross state lines. 
There's a discussion on the federal level to change that, to move that down maybe to 18 and give that opportunity to younger people. A lot of people in the industry think that's a good idea because we lose so many people who could potentially become a truck driver because of the fact that you get out of high school. How old are you? 18. What do you want to do? Well, I'd like to be a truck driver. Well, come back when you're 21. So in the meantime, between 18 and 21, they learn another trade. And we've lost them. By the time they're 21, we'll never get them. What kind of salary can the average truck driver expect to make? Well, you know, it's all across the board. It depends on what you're hauling, who you're hauling for. It depends on what kind of credentials you have. Do you want to be long haul? Do you want to be short haul, be home every night? Do you want to haul hazardous materials? They all play a part in it. The demand is there that has pushed the salary level way up, in fact. It's not uncommon for, you know, someone to be dangled, you know, fresh out of school. Uh, hey, I'm going to put you to work for $60,000, you know, and, and that's just coming out of school. There are drivers who are good drivers who have uh, good experience, of a good safety record, who are making $120,000. Over the past year or so, we've seen significant increases in fuel costs and the per gallon price of diesel rising. How difficult is it to contend with challenges of this kind? The industry has learned to deal with fluctuation in fuel prices by implementing a fuel surcharge. Fuel surcharge is based on a number that's put out every Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And a company uses that as a benchmark. The industry has also dealt very much so with how do you get better fuel mileage out of a vehicle. You know, for a truck that maybe gets six miles to the gallon, if you were to get a half mile per gallon improvement in how you drive, you know, that's 17 18%. And when you buy fuel by the truckload, in other words, you buy fuel by a tank wagon load, seven, 8,000 gallons at a time, that adds up. So the companies are very cognizant of that. We've all heard about supply chain problems increasing since the onset of COVID-19. Have you noticed any improvement in this area, or do you see it as a continuing issue for a while now? Supply chain is not just on trucking. It goes from the ship that goes from China to Long Beach, California, where it hops on a train. It comes to Joliet, for example, where it's uploaded, offloaded, I should say, those containers. Uh, then a truck picks them up and takes them five, 600 miles in a region in the, mid, in the Midwest. you got to have each one of those modes of transportation working. Here in the Midwest, we also deal with the river. We haul a lot of grain, a lot of fertilizer. So all these different modes of transportation have all been challenged in the last three years by COVID. And they're all just at the point now of digging out. There's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel right now, I think. We're starting to see it. Things are improving. That's Midwest Truckers Association Executive Vice President Don Schaefer. He spoke with Joe Deacon from Sister Station WCBU. And that is Sound Ideas Today. WGLT's news magazine made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. This is 89.1 FM, WGLT and WGLT.org, Bloomington Normal's public media, part of the NPR network.